You know, one of the cool things about how God has worked in the world and how he is currently working in the world is his ability to multiply what little we have and at times what little we are. (laughs) And you look back through human history and what you find time and time and time again is that that God takes a people who are small or a people who are outnumbered or a people who aren't overly skilled or overly trained and, and he leads them to victory in situations where they should not be victorious. <laughs> there, there are situations where people who gather, they give, they, 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 they invest their time and their, their, their talents. They, they, they serve people who are average, ordinary, not, not, you know, not, like not overly specialized in anything, but, but yet collectively God used them to make a difference. We, we think of times in Jesus' ministry, for example, where like, like he had a, a few fish and a few loaves of bread and he fed over 5,000 people. And one of the cool things about how God has always worked in history is how he multiplies for his honor and his glory what little his people can do or what little his people can give. And he does it in such a way to ultimately he gets the glory. I I, I was mindful of this a few weeks ago, reading back in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 about King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat in the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, right? The southern kingdom of Judah was, was threatened by three different people groups, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the people of Mount Seir. And at one point in time, like they're surrounded by like hundreds of thousands of troops, hundreds of thousands of troops. And they're, they're overwhelmed by these enemies that are pressing around them and they don't know what to do. And Jehoshaphat goes before the Lord and he says, Lord, what what do I do? And the Lord says to King Jehoshaphat, as Israel's vastly outnumbered and overwhelmed, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Levites, the tribe of the Levites, and I want you to put them out front and to lead your people forward. Now, the Levites, if you recall, were responsible for worship and the sacrificial system in Israel. And so in other words, here's what God says to do. God says, I want you to get those guys with the skinny jeans and the guitars. And I want you to put them out front. And I want you to lead them into battle. I mean, listen, I love our worship team. I think they're amazing what they do. But like, if I had to go into a war with our staff, I ain't putting the skinny jeans guys out front, okay? I have other staff members that immediately come to mind as the people I would wanna fall in behind, okay? But it's not, it's not the worship team. The worship team would be somewhere in the rear of the line. Like the response is, hey, I don't need y'all to do anything. I mean, like they would be picked last on the Bell Shoals kickball team. Are you with me? Like you can't hit the ball with your guitar, dude, okay? Just sit back there and cheer kind of thing, right? But the Lord says to King Jehoshaphat, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get the Levites and I want you to put them out front. And that's exactly what Jehoshaphat does. And in 2 Chronicles 20, here's what it says. Okay, here's what happened. The next day, the Levites lead the people of Israel into battle, singing praise giving thanks to the Lord. Here's what it said, quote, give thanks to the Lord 
for his faithful love endures forever. And as they went to battle singing and worshiping, the Lord threw the Ammonites and the Moabites and the people of Mount Seir into confusion and they didn't know what to do and they ended up fleeing and Israel ended up plundering all that they had. And when you look back through Israel's history, time and time and time again, what do you see? The faithfulness of God. The multiplying power of God to take a few people, to take a small people, to take an average people and to do great things with them. It's incredible. What, what, what do you see in the New Testament? What, what, what do you see in, in this in this? era that's 2,000 years old now, known as the church, right? Where, where God's moving now through his people, through the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit and his people. What do you see? You see average ordinary people gathering together, giving together, serving together, going on mission together, and God's changing the world. What does the apostle Paul say? Just consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to the world standards. Not many of you are noble of some type of nobility. Not many of you are overly like wealthy in, in the sense that like, um, you know, you just have unlimited resources. Like, like, like just look at you, look at your life. Like, like most of us are just pretty average people. You know, like, like we're normal, we would consider ourselves to be normal, but yet God is in the business of multiplying to the extent that he takes just average ordinary people and does miraculous things through them. And he's always done this. God takes the little and he can make it accomplish much. And God is a God that multiplies. And he, he multiplies miraculously, he multiplies as only he can do. And in this series called Rethinking Rich, today I, want us to, I just want us to give consideration to this multiplying work of God because it is so encouraging to be a part of a people, an average ordinary group of people who are radically saved by God's grace and who are leveraging what we have and who we are to make a difference for Jesus and then to see him do something so great that only he can get the glory for it. I mean, there's no greater joy in all of life than to be a part of this thing called the church and to see how we can collectively make such a difference by God's grace and his multiplying miraculous power. And, and as we think about what it truly means to be rich, we, we've talked about that, that the way we manage our money reflects our value system. We, the very first week we talked about the rich fool and how, how if, 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 if we value the wrong things, then we use our money in the wrong ways. And, and therefore it's, it's critical that we have a value system that reflects God's priorities. And then last week we've talked about managing our money and, and the importance, Jesus said, you, don't, you just don't build a tower, don't build a building without first counting the cost, right? The importance of seeing ourselves as stewards, not owners, and then managing properly and efficiently for the sake of kingdom impact and the wise distribution of what God's entrusted to us. And today we're gonna talk about multiplying our money. And then next week we'll finish the series talking about mastering our money. And so we're talking about managing, multiplying and mastering. And today as we think about multiplying our money. It's just, man, it's so much fun to think about how God does work through a little to accomplish a lot. And, and when we think about this multiplying work of God, when we think about our part in it, uh, people often make one of two mistakes. I, I see two kind of significant errors in how we how we think about multiplying 
our money and leveraging it to make a difference for God's kingdom. First of all, there are people who are stuck in an Old Testament understanding of what it means to be a multiplier. And they see giving as something that's restricted to a percentage known as a tithe. Now, this is going to be a little controversial, okay? (laughs) Because what I want to remind you of is that this one way of thinking that our giving is like a tithe going back to ancient Israel and it's a tenth of what we earn and we give the 10% and then we get to do whatever else we want with the 90% is actually not consistent with the New Testament. Now, I don't care if you want to call your giving a tithe. I mean, the semantics to me are secondary. What's primary is for us to understand that what God's requiring of us in terms of how we steward is not the same thing as national Israel being in a theocracy supporting a system that we no longer live in. And so there are many people today who view their giving as a tithe or a tenth. They think if I give 10%, then I'm good. And they they almost see it as a God tax. (laughs) And there's somebody saying, you know, if I don't give 10%, then God can't be pleased with me. So I got to get this 10%, get to 10%, I'm good. I pay my God tax and I'm good. And I just want you to know, like, that's actually not how God is seeking to multiply what we do presently. The other extreme are those who feel like, you know what, I've got to give everything I have to support those who are in need and God's mission work around the world. And, and really the problem is there's, there's, there's no clear line of demarcation from where that thinking ends. And therefore people live with a kind of false guilt that motivates their giving. And the best kind of giving that we have is a giving not motivated by guilt, but that's motivated by grace. And there are people who feel like, you know, I've got to, I've got to kind of, I've got to do everything. I've, and, and so the, it's a hard place on knowing where to draw that line. Like what car is acceptable to drive and what house is acceptable to live in and what clothes are acceptable to wear and what food is legitimate to buy. And, and there are some people who feel like, you know, I've got to give everything away. And so we kind of have two extremes. Like there's the, there, the, the extreme of those who think, okay, we still live in the Old Testament and God still expects 10% and there's still this thing called tithe or attacks. And as long as I do that, I'm good. And then there are others who feel like, no, I got to do kind of way more than I got to do everything and don't know where to draw that line. And it's interesting as you look back through the history of the church, we aren't the first people who have wrestled with these thoughts and ideas. You know how the scripture says there's nothing new under the sun? Well, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) And there've been some great Christian thinkers through the years to address both of these perspectives on how we multiply our money and how we leverage it for kingdom causes. And, and, and one person in particular that I love talking about the extreme of like, okay, we have to give everything away is John Calvin, who over 500 years ago said this. Okay, check this out, 500 years ago. He said, if a man begins to doubt whether he may use linen for his sheets, shirts, handkerchiefs, and napkins, he will afterward be uncertain also about cotton. <laughs> Soon he must question whether he should give up napkins altogether. If he decides that eating gourmet food is sinful, opting instead for only plain food, soon he must conclude that he could survive on beans and rice alone. If he demurs that expensive wine, how could he settle for three buck chuck? (laughs) I don't know what that is, but 
It must have been some cheap version of a drink, okay? After all, Calvin continued, water is always cheaper. And he must concede that filtered water is wrong if tap water is available. And so 500 years ago, John Calvin's kind of speaking into this one extreme, which is, you know, we have to give away everything and live on nothing. And then, as I've said, we have this other extreme, which is like, okay, we're still Old Testament Israel. And as long as I do a tenth, then God is happy. And here, here's what I want you to understand today, that God's current multiplication, the way he multiplies his, 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 his work of multiplication in our lives actually comes down to the condition of our hearts more than anything else. And today, again, we've, we've, we've talked about our value system, we, the importance of that. We've talked about what it means to manage wisely as stewards, not owners. Today, I want us to think about how God then takes what we manage and what we leverage toward kingdom causes and he multiplies it in a profound way. And that comes down to being men and women who are giving not out of guilt, but out of grace. People who are giving not out of some kind of ritualistic, legalistic law, but who are giving as people who are saved by grace. And this has actually always been God's concern. God's concern has always been with the heart. And, and that's why, for instance, we go back to this extreme that Calvin addressed with like, you know, we can never do enough. It, it just doesn't match what the scriptures teach, even in the Old Testament. Let me show you Psalm 104. I think this is instructive for us. Well, look at what God says here. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and he provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth. Good food, I would add, right? And then look at verse 15 here. Wine that makes human hearts glad. Now, if you're a lifelong Baptist, you would substitute sweet tea in here, okay? <laughs> so um, wine that makes human hearts glad making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. In other words, the psalmist is reflecting on the fact that God is the giver of every good gift and he gives good gifts for us to enjoy and he's glorified when we enjoy them. So if I ask you, ladies, how does your family best honor you at Thanksgiving when they sit down at your table? And the answer is they enjoy gladly what you have provided. And for me, that involves turkey and dressing and um, that cranberry stuff that comes in a can. Not the berries, yeah, the salt. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, and then you cut it up. Oh man, that's good. That's good. Right? How, how do you best honor someone that's given you a gift? Well, you best honor them by enjoying the gift that they've given. Which is why as a parent, you learn that not only is it much better to give than receive as Jesus taught, but you also learn quickly that some of your kids are not good gift receivers. And you learn the sting of that, right? Like at Christmas, you give your child just this amazing gift. Maybe you literally have been thinking about it, planning on it for months, excited about it, envisioning what it's gonna be like. And then they tear into that thing and they end up playing with the box more than the toy or the gift, right? Or maybe you have someone in your family that's a terrible gift receiver. Does anybody have a terrible gift receiver in their family? And, and you give them something and they open it and they're like, huh, thanks. And you're like, thanks? Like I've been, I've been, I've been... 
thinking about this for six months. Like I even did layaway. <laughs> Is that still a thing? I don't know if that's still a thing. Okay. Right? And then like maybe you have a bad just gift to receiver. They're like, thank. And they, they mean well. They just don't speak well. And so you know, what's the best way for you to be honored in giving a gift? And it's for the person who's received the gift to enjoy it. And hear me. The scriptures tell us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. The psalmist tells us that God gives us drink to enjoy, that makes our hearts glad, that he gives us food to eat. He, he blesses us. And, and listen, we should give thanks to the Lord for all he has provided. Which is why in this series, I've been saying that, that we, more than most in the world's history, should be a grateful people. Not a guilt-ridden people, a grateful people for all that God has provided. We honor him and we enjoy responsibly what he has given to us. And, and again, so the Old Testament speaks this, right? And, and the New Testament speaks to this. So when we think about this multiplying work, it's, it's not about a tax. It's not about a percentage. It's, and it's not about like you got to live in a cardboard box, okay? We need to kind of come to the middle here and understand that God is a grace-giving, generous God, and therefore he is a God who multiplies our grace-giving and our generosity in ways in which only he gets the glory. And that's our concern. Which is why Proverbs 11 says this, one person gives freely and yet gains more, another withholds what is right only to become poor. A generous person will be enriched and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. God's always been in the business of multiplying generosity. God, even in the Old Testament, has always been concerned about the condition of our hearts more than the amount that we give. And yes, there was a tithe or a tenth required for national Israel. But what we see in the New Testament is something very, very different. It's it's no longer giving out of some type of obligation. It's giving that is rooted in grace. And that kind of giving always results in generosity. And so, and so if you're taking notes, just make a note of this, okay? Here's what I want to show you today. That generous people give generously. Who are the people in a Proverbs 11 way? Give freely and yet gain more. <laughs> this is God's multiplying power, right? Who are these people? Well, they're people who have been so impacted by the grace of God that their lives now, their stewardship now is characterized by generosity. Here's my point. Generous people give generously. Do you realize that, that there are poor people who are stingy and rich people who are stingy? And there are poor people who are generous and rich people who are generous. And if you're sitting here thinking today, well, God can never multiply what I have and God can never multiply what I give because I can't give enough. And if you think that, you know what, once I reach a certain income level, once I get a certain amount in my, in my you know, 401k, then I can be generous. You, 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 you grossly misunderstand what it means to be generous. Generosity is not about an income level. It's about the condition of your heart. And the people who give generously are generous people. At every income level, 
in every stage and season of life. And as I wanna show you today, it's not a generosity motivated in false guilt or in legalistic obligation. It's a generosity that's rooted in the grace of God. And hear me, whenever we cultivate that kind of generosity in our lives, the Lord multiplies it. Which is why he says the one who gives will be enriched all the more. And so here's what we're gonna to see today, that generous people give generously. Not wealthy people give generously, no. Some wealthy people don't give generously at all. Some poor people give more generously than some wealthy people. Here's what we're seeing. Generous people give generously. And to become generous, you have to shift your value system to be rooted in grace. And ultimately the example of Jesus. And there's a powerful example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want, I want to share it with you this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you, have, if you have a copy of God's Word, go there with me. And it's the example of um, some brothers and sisters, as you'll see here, in Macedonia. All right? Now, Paul is writing to a people in Corinth, one of the most strategic cities in the first century. But he's talking about some brothers and sisters in Macedonia who were in uh, a, a very difficult situation. And Paul is writing because the Corinthians want to help the Macedonians and Paul's affirming the Macedonians that they've been helping others even in their distress. And this whole thing is just a reflection on how God multiplies what we give and how we live when we live generously. So here's here's what I want you to see. Generous people give generously. And the Macedonians were generous people, even in their poverty, right? So he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia during a severe trial. Here's what they did. Brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Listen, this is how God does it. That's what I'm saying. This is the multiplying work of God. Like like the Macedonians were facing severe affliction and persecution, but... They had so much joy in Jesus that even though their external circumstances are dire, right, their internal posture is one of joy. How cool is that? Right, that's why the New Testament talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You realize that the fruit of the Spirit is something not motivated by our external circumstances. It's motivated by what God has done in our hearts. So that we can be a people of joy even when we're suffering. Right, and so look, so you've got this great affliction in the people of Macedonia, but yet they have such joy that even in their poverty, this joy is overflowing through a wealth of generosity on their part. So they're people who are characterized by poverty, but yet Paul said they're some of the most wealthy people on earth because they have so much joy in the Lord and then that joy is leading to generosity. So you have these Macedonian believers in their affliction, in their poverty, but yet they learn of another need that exists among some fellow believers. And they're like, hey, we wanna help. I mean, this is crazy, right? So look what happens next. So Paul says, I can testify that according to their ability, according to their ability, not a percentage, right? Not something that's foolish, just what they could do, which was a little, but according to their ability and even beyond that, of their own accord, they begged us, Paul says, earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. Paul says, hey, Corinthians, I know you're wanting to help the Macedonians, but let me tell you about the people you're helping here. Yeah, they have a need. They would welcome your help. But here's what's, I, mean, I just want to know, these people though, man, like they're, yeah, they're afflicted. 
most of them are living in poverty, but they came to me and they said, hey, we've learned of these other brothers and sisters who are struggling and we want to help. We went in on that. Man, that's the radical grace of Jesus right there. It's that we don't have a lot. We're, we're suffering here, but we love Jesus and we love our brothers and sisters and there's nothing more important to us in our lives than to advance the mission of the gospel. And if these brothers and sisters are hurting over here, we wanna help. They go to Paul, they say, we wanna help. Paul's like, hey, you don't have much to help. They say, no, 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 you don't get it. We're begging, we're begging. We wanna help, we want in on this. And so they gave, Paul said they gave out of their power. They gave a little. And you know what? God multiplied their giving. They didn't have a lot, but they said, we want in. And Paul's like, hey, man, yeah, they need help, but, but, but man, they get it. And, and so now Paul's kind of using them as an example of the Corinthians and the Corinthians effort to try to multiply their giving. Here, here's what happens when you get to chapter nine. So Paul says, now concerning the ministry to the saints, it's unnecessary for me to write to you. He says, for I know your eagerness, you know, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. So I'm, I'm boasting about the Macedonians to you and I'm boasting about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty. In other words, Paul's like, I'm gonna send some people to you to kind of collect an offering to help with these other brothers and sisters so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. And the point is this. So Paul's saying, hey, y'all want to help. And I'm going to send somebody ahead to facilitate that. It's just awesome how, you know, like the Lord's used the Macedonians to help others. And now the Lord's using you to help them. I mean, it's just awesome. That's how the Lord works. He's multiplying this generosity all across the first century world. And so Paul says, Here, here's the point, right? The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. And each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you. This is God's multiplying power. The God who brought the walls of Jericho down with some of those boys in skinny jeans and guitars. The God who delivered King Jehoshaphat. The God who fed 5,000 people with a few fish and loaves of bread, right? This God in our generosity, as little as it may seem at times, right? is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. For it is written, talking about Jesus now, Jesus fulfilled this. He distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So Paul concludes like this. He says, now, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God's in the multiplying work so that you will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. This is how the Lord works today. Actually, this is what we've been about since 1961. An average ordinary group of people in West Central Florida making it our mission to make much of Jesus wherever we can, however we can. 
you realize through the collective generosity of Bell Shoals, we have planted dozens and dozens of churches around the world. Average, ordinary group of people in West Central Florida have launched numerous missionaries, have seen countless people come to salvation. I mean, how does this happen? Because our God is a multiplying kind of God. And he uses average, ordinary people in ways that he gets the glory and he does it as we leverage who we are and what we have in such a way that we are people characterized by grace. Grace in our giving, grace in our generosity, grace in our living. Man, that's what characterizes the work of the church. And so let me just say this again. Generous people give generously. Generous people live generously. It's not about an income amount. It's not about a retirement amount. It's about the condition of our hearts and what we value most. And so the question today is, okay, then how do we cultivate generosity? You know, how do we as a people of grace cultivate grace in our giving and in our living? And Paul highlights three areas quickly. Let me touch on them. First of all, we give proportionately. All right, make a note of this. We give proportionately. How do we approach grace giving? What does it look like to give generously? Well, we give proportionately. Paul says in verse seven there that we give as we decide in our hearts relative to our income and our overall financial health, right? We give not under compulsion. We give so that it's not viewed as something that's an extortion. <laughs> he says, we give willingly. Like we, we give as we decide in our hearts. That means we give proportionately. And every single one of us have a capacity to give. Even the Macedonians had the capacity to give. They gave little, they had little to give, but they gave. And, and, and that's characteristic of the people of God. We give proportionally. God's pleased with that, right? It's not about a percentage. It's not about a dollar amount. It's about our hearts and cultivating over the course of our lives a spirit and a lifestyle of generosity. So, so let, me, let me say this, okay? Some of you are not in a place that you can give 10% of your income right now. And maybe you beat yourself up with some type of false guilt that, well, I'm not getting to that tax level, <laughs> right? I'm not getting that 10%. Maybe you're a single mom. Maybe you've been through a tragic circumstance. Maybe you've got some unique um, uh, situation. You know, maybe, maybe you're out of work. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you're in transition. Okay, there are many reasons. Maybe you're at a place legitimately, like you can't get to 10% right now. May I just say that any type of Macedonian giving it's something the Lord honors and multiplies if you're giving it with a spirit of joy to the Lord. You don't have to reach a magic percentage to say, okay, God's pleased with you. Some of you are in a situation where maybe you're, you're learning from this series. Hey, I got to reroute some things and you're working on some things and you can't go to 10% right now. I understand that. I just want you to hear that 10%, that's false guilt. But let me say this. There are some of you in a stage of season of life, you're still giving 10% and you should be giving 20%. And you're stuck in a wrong view of what generosity looks like in that, okay, I give my tithe tax and then I'm good. And what you fail to realize is, no, what Paul is teaching here is we all give proportionately. We, we give not under compulsion, right? We give as we've decided in our hearts. And what that means is that over the course of our lives, as we're building wealth, it frees us up to leverage more and more and more to the kingdom of God. 
And so all of us have to ask ourselves the question, in every stage and season of life, are we doing all that we can to reflect grace in our giving and in our living? And for some, the starting point might be less than 10%, and that's okay. That's Macedonian kind of giving. But for others, it might be, you know what, I should have crossed that 10% threshold a long time ago, but I haven't because I'm restricting myself to something that doesn't even apply to me anymore. And so wherever that line is for you, we all have to ask in terms of our proportional giving, what we should be leveraging to make much of Jesus and to reflect generosity in our lives. Secondly, make a note of this. How do we cultivate generosity? Well, we give proportionally and then we give cheerfully. We give cheerfully. Right? I mean, this has always been the point. We've touched on this already, but this is the point. Paul says literally in the original language, you give in a hilarious fashion. That's actually what the word means. It's an emphatic term. It's you give with hilarity, right? You give not with just a smile, but with a deep belly laugh about how excited you are to be a part of what God is doing around the world. Like literally every time you give, you should be belly laughing. Okay, not really, but that's the point. Right, like we give with such joy. That's how the Macedonians gave. These people who were impoverished, right? But they gave with joy. Paul says, actually, that was kind of like the wealth of their generosity found in the joy of their giving, not necessarily with a dollar amount or a certain percentage. It was, it was that they gave what they could, proportionate to where they were and what they had, but they gave it joyfully, enthusiastically. Man, they gave it out of the abundance of what God has done for them and, and therefore Paul says, that's what pleases the Lord. Because it is what Jesus taught us, right? Like it's so much better to, to give than receive. And then you learn as a parent at Christmas when you're so, I've never been so excited about something in all of life, like to give something that's gonna put a smile on someone else's face, to give, to support the work of someone overseas that's dedicated their lives to making a difference, to give, to see people come to Jesus. Man, listen, we'll never fully know this side of heaven how God has multiplied our generosity, but we will know one day. And the full joy of our generosity will be experienced in heaven when we get to be a part of people who have come to faith in Christ that we've never even met, but that God was able to bring to salvation through our collective effort. That's so cool. And so Paul says, what does it look like to cultivate generosity? Well, you give proportionally and you give cheerfully. I heard about a mom who was teaching her daughter about giving cheerfully. <laughs> and they went to, went to church one Sunday morning and the, and the, uh, the mom gave the, the daughter a dollar bill and a quarter. And she says, okay, sweetheart, when, the, when we have the offering in church today, I want you to give how you feel like you should give. You can teach your daughter about giving. And so they go through the church service, they're on their way home and the mom says to the little girl, says, okay, sweetheart, what did you give? And the little girl says, well, mommy, I gave the quarter. And mom says, okay, well, why did you give the quarter? She says, well, I was going to give the dollar, but just before the offering, the pastor got up and said that we should all be cheerful givers. And I knew I'd be a lot more cheerful if I gave the quarter and kept the dollar. <laughs> I've been there. Anybody else been there? And um, that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here, right? It's growing in grace to the extent that our giving reflects a heart of gratitude and, and the Lord's honor with that. And that gets us to the last thing then this morning. What does it look like to cultivate generosity? Generous people give generously. A grace bought 
blood-bought people give generously. What does that mean? Well, proportionally, cheerfully, and then here's the thing, expectantly. Here's what Paul goes on to say in the latter part of that passage, verses 8 through 11, that... um, that were a people who've been radically changed by the grace of Jesus. You know what Jesus did? Jesus came and he, and he gave of himself for us, right? And, and he gave in such a way, this is, this is Paul's point, he gave in such a way that even though he was rich, he made himself poor for us, right? And it was, and it's what he accomplished with that. That's so amazing. That's why we're here today, right? That's what Paul said back in 2 Corinthians 8 in verse 9. Check this out. Here's what Paul said there. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich spiritually, right? We were poor spiritually, destitute, lost, hopeless, destined for hell. And Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came, even though he's wealthy, he owns everything, he made everything. He came, subjected himself to us, He became poor spiritually, enduring the wrath of God in our place, taking on our sin so that we spiritually could become rich and become sons and daughters of God. Paul said, this is the generosity of Jesus. This this is what it looks like. Hebrews 12 then. Yeah, here's what he says there, right? Hebrews 12. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that laid before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of God, right? Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him with agony, yes, with suffering, tremendous suffering, separated from the Father, enduring the wrath of God. But it was joy that drove Jesus to the cross, knowing what he would accomplish. Boy, that expectation, right? That's why we give. That's why that's what Jesus teaches us, right? That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 that 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 he's distributed to the poor, right? We've participated in his righteousness as a result. He became poor for us, and we might become rich, and it was for the joy set before him of what giving of his life would accomplish the salvation of sinners. And hear me, when Jesus hung on that Roman cross for you and for me, he did not tithe his blood. He gave it all. He didn't give a tenth of it. He didn't give a fifteenth of it. Jesus gave it all. And therefore, here's our goal, Bell Shoals, to value more than anything else, King Jesus and the fact that our citizenship is no longer here, but it's there with him. To manage in such a way that we steward well what he's entrusted to us and then seek to multiply what we can and all that we can so that this message of salvation will ring across the nations. And so whether it's 5% or 10% or 15% or 20 or 25 or 30 or whatever it is, we proportionally, cheerfully and expectantly leverage what we have over time to make much of Jesus. And what does the scriptures teach? You can't outgive God. You can't outgive him. He's gonna multiply that work. There's a bunch of random folks in West Central Florida leveraging generosity, grace-filled 
generosity, not guilt-driven generosity, not legalistic-driven generosity, grace-given generosity, knowing that Jesus gave it all for us. God multiplies it in such a way that only eternity will fully reveal the full extent of God's multiplying work through you. And that's why we value generosity. (laughs) And that's why we used to sing, remember this, that Jesus paid it all. Anybody remember that? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left what? A crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that's why we give. That's why we live. That's why we serve. That's why we go. We're a people who have experienced God's multiplying work and are seeking to perpetuate that in the days to come.